All right, I'm getting the wind up to start us off. And I know some people might come in late this evening because that traffic was phenomenal tonight. So we will get uh, quite a bit of traffic in later. Uh, good evening, everybody. I'm Bronwyn Fredericks and I'm offering um, part of the MC role this evening and sort of a bit of a quasi-host with the most for you tonight. <laughs> Want to watch it, I'm getting cheeky. Um, as is customary, I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners and their custodianship on the land on which we are meeting tonight and UQ operates and pay my respects to their ancestors and descendants who continue connections to country. I want to acknowledge that we do have elders and people from this land with us here tonight who are connected to this place, um, but actually not just this place, but Yagara, Turrbal, Gubby Gubby and Kwandamooka peoples of the southeast Queensland region. So thank you for coming this evening and I make mention of Uncle Cheg who's with us this evening and other elders that are with us this evening. I want to acknowledge all our special guests, including Professor Deborah Terry, AO, Vice-Chancellor and President, our wonderful guest speaker tonight, distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson, for our UQ talk speaker this evening and the first of this series. And I think it's really fitting to take the words from Professor Tracy Bunder that the first order of the business or the first order of this series is actually Indigenous people and foregrounding Indigenous people in terms of the order of our business. Um, other community members and elders, members of um, the UQ community, friends and donors, alumni and students, if there are students here tonight, welcome. You're in for something really special in terms of what you're going to inherit in terms of Indigenous studies going forward, but you're also going to hear an exceptional scholar. Distinguished guests, welcome everybody. I'm the Pro Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Engagement at the University of Queensland, and it's a special night, as I've said. We come together for the first of the UQ Talks for 2023. It will um, mark the first of a series of events across the year, but it also makes, I guess, the culmination of many months of planning for the series, but also for this evening to kick it off and kick the series off. It's taken time to create the event, to curate it in a sense, in terms of not just what the university wanted, but Aileen and the guests in the Indigenous Engagement Office was also looking for in an event like this. I want to acknowledge all of those people involved, but particularly the UQ alumni engagement team and also members of my team, the Indigenous engagement team, and all that they may have done individually, but also respectfully together, collaboratively. Events such as this do highlight some of the brightest minds we have at UQ, those that we know about and sometimes those that we don't really know about. For some of you here tonight, you might have heard of Aileen Morton-Robinson or read her work. For others, you may have just got the invite and decided to come along after reading the fantastic bio and the information. But you are in for a very big treat. With that, it's particularly appropriate that we will be hearing from globally renowned author, scholar, activist and proud Gunpul woman of the Kwandamooka people, distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson. Aileen has been a critical member in the development and establishment 
of the first ever Indigenous-led Australian Research Council Centre for Excellence, which is hosted by UQ. It is a historical moment, not just for UQ, but also for Australia, and we'll hear a little, hear a little bit about the background in terms of Indigenous studies with that tonight. I now wish to welcome our Vice-Chancellor and President, Professor Debbie Terry Ao, to the stage to opening, for opening this evening. Thank you, Debbie. Well, good evening, everyone, and wonderful to see so many people here tonight. Thank you, Bronwyn, for those opening comments. And can I, too, begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we are meeting tonight. We honour their elders and the elders who are with us here this evening, and we respect their continuing cultural and spiritual connection to this land as we walk together on the path to reconciliation. I'd also like to acknowledge our guest speaker, distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson, UQ colleagues, alumni, distinguished guests, one and all. And it's a great pleasure to be here this evening as we gather for this, as Bronwyn has indicated, the first event in our new UQ Talks series. The intent of this series is to showcase some of the outstanding research that's produced by the world-leading academics working at UQ, and to give our researchers a platform to speak on topics that are of critical importance to Australia and the world more broadly. Building on the legacy of the long-running global leadership series, UQ Talks is intended to be a forum for our alumni community to connect, converse, and debate these important issues. To launch the series this evening, I'm delighted to say that we have one of the most widely respected Indigenous academics, not just here in Australia, but globally. Distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson is an accomplished academic, author, researcher and an activist for Indigenous rights. She's a Gurunpool woman from Minjeribar on Stradbroke Island, which of course is part of the Kwandamunkan Nation. Aileen is currently a Professor of Indigenous Research at UQ, and as Bronwyn has just acknowledged, she is one of the four co-leads of the soon-to-be-launched Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Indigenous Futures, which will be based at UQ. This is the first ever Indigenous-led Centre of Excellence, funded by the Australian Research Council, and it will focus on addressing the complex nature of intergenerational inequality among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. As Vice-Chancellor, I'm delighted and very proud that UQ will be hosting this important new centre and that it will be led... <laughs> it is absolutely wonderful. And the fact that it will be led by Bronwyn and Aileen, along with Professor Brendan Hokarito, who's with, with us here this evening, and Professor James Ward. Throughout her academic career, Aileen has made very, very significant contributions to the fields of Indigenous studies, critical race theory, and feminist theory. Her doctoral thesis, titled Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism, 
was first published by UQ Press in the year 2000, and it has since become regarded as a seminal text for its exploration of the impact of white Australian feminism on Indigenous women. The book was shortlisted for both the New South Wales Premier, Premier's Literary Awards and the Stanner Award for Indigenous Writing in 2001. And I'm very proud to say that UQ Press reprinted the book in 2020 to mark the 20th anniversary of its original publication. In 2015, the University of Minnesota Press compiled a collection of Aileen's journal articles and published them as a book titled The White Possessive, Property, Power and Indigenous Sovereignty. That book won the subsequent book prize awarded by the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association in 2016, and it is now regarded as a globally significant text in the field of Indigenous studies. Aileen has made very important contributions to a number of Australian universities. She's taught Indigenous studies at Griffith University, as well as women's studies at Flinders University. She worked at QUT from 2006 until 2019, where she became Professor of Indigenous Studies and the Dean of Indigenous Research and Engagement. She is a former Director of the Australian Research Council's National Indigenous Research and Knowledges Network. She served as President of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Higher Education Consortium in 2019. She is a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Humanities and in 2020 became the first Indigenous scholar from outside of the United States to be elected as an honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Now I've just given you a very brief overview of Aileen's hugely impressive contributions to academia. I could talk much longer. And the accolades that she has very appropriately received across her career. There is so much more that I could say. But perhaps her impact is most powerfully demonstrated by the fact that she has helped to advance community awareness and understanding of Indigenous perspectives and knowledge systems. She has, she has taught us all about these really important topics. Such awareness is absolutely essential if we as a nation are to achieve genuine reconciliation and realise that vision so powerfully expressed in the Uluru Statement from the Heart of an Australian future where Indigenous children will, and I quote, walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. So it's now my great honour to invite distinguished Professor Aileen Morton Robinson to the stage to deliver the first lecture in this UQ talk series on the past, present and future of Indigenous Studies. Thank you very much, Aileen. Oh my goodness. Well, I'd like to, uh, well, say yura to everyone in the room um, and acknowledge the sovereignty of the Turrbal and Yagara, who share this location with many other tribes for feasting on the banks of Mirwa. 
I acknowledge the Vice-Chancellor and President of UQ, Professor Deborah Terry, AO, and Pro-Vice-Chancellor Indigenous Leadership, Bronwyn Fredericks, and Professor Brendan Hokafitu, uh, the Director of the new ARC Centre of Excellence for Indigenous Futures, and Professor Tracy Bunda, our uh, Professor of Indigenous Education. Um, I am Eula Beriba, a saltwater woman. My bloodline to country in southeast Queensland runs through my mother's paternal grandmother, Maminda, who is Yagara, and she married my mother's grandfather, Mukun, who was Gorenpul. Mukun's mother, Dinaba, was also known as Sarah, and she was Turabal. On her father, Kawali's side, who was also known as King Sandy, and her mother, Naywin, was also English name of Sarah, and she was an Undombi woman of the Gubbi Gubbi people. I acknowledge the sovereignties of all the Indigenous people here today, and I pay my respects to your elders. It is rare for me to have uh, my immediate and extended family present when I speak, and I want to acknowledge first my dear elder, Auntie Mill Cook, my cousin, Auntie Marie Goble, my daughter, Rhiannon, and grandchildren, Maminda, Grace, Lucy, and Charlie, and welcome to everyone else here tonight. May the spirits welcome us as we talk, think, and understand. And here we go. Okay, so historically, the study of Indigenous peoples emerged out of the discipline of anthropology in Australia. From the 1960s, anthropological discourse shaped disciplines such as history, archaeology, linguistics, and political science as the study of Indigenous people gained traction in ways that it had not in the previous century. Anthropology was also influenced by social movements. The 1960s and 70s were fertile years for the growth of social movements, which entered public and political consciousness, and universities were impacted by these social changes, and different fields of study emerged. Native studies, Maori studies, women's studies, gay and lesbian studies, African-American studies, peace studies, and ethnic studies, um, Australian studies, to mention a few. Over the next two decades, Indigenous scholars entered universities in unprecedented numbers globally and contested non-Indigenous studies of Indigenous peoples. In the United States in the 1970s, this influx of Indigenous scholars facilitated debates about whether Indigenous programs should become disciplines. Similar discussions occurred in New Zealand, Hawaii and Canada, but not in Australia where Aboriginal people were still struggling to gain access to universities. In 1976, only 78 Aboriginal people held university degrees. And I just want to give you some context. The first Native American graduated from Harvard in 1665. The first First Nation graduated from Dartmouth in 1781. The first Māori graduated in 1893. We were, we were 1957. Historically, the study of Indigenous peoples is tied to the disciplinary knowledge of anthropology, which was particularly useful to different colonial administrations prior to World War II. In the 19th century, anthropologists were fixated with the study of Indigenous peoples' racial attributes, then shifted focus in the mid-20th century to study the, our cultural attributes. As I discuss elsewhere, the transition from the study of race to the study of culture did not preclude the former from influencing the latter. 
From the 1960s, anthropological discourse shaped disciplines such as history, archaeology, linguistics, and political science, and the study of indigenous peoples gained traction. For example, anthropology influenced how archaeologists interpreted early hominid behavior and cultural practices, and in the discipline of history, anthropological knowledge was used to support arguments for the validity and legitimacy of oral history. As much as anthropology influenced other disciplines, it was also influenced by social change occurring after World War II. The establishment of the United Nations on the 24th of October in 1945 and the signing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. The declaration by explicitly conferring rights on all humans provided a means for oppressed groups to mobilise politically and it influenced the African decolonisation movement in the 50s and 60s. Anthropologists played a pivotal role in developing Aboriginal studies in Australia, motivated by the need to save disappearing cultures. They lobbied the government and proposed the establishment of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies in 1959. Government responded by setting up a working party at the Australian National University to consider the potential validity of an institute. In 1960, the Working Party appointed anthropologist E.P. Stanner to convene the first conference on the state of Aboriginal studies in Australia. Non-Aboriginal academics and anthropologists were the only attendees at the conference. After the conference, and on the basis of the report arising out of it, Prime Minister Menzies established an interim council of non-Aboriginal academics and anthropologists to develop a plan for a national research organisation. The outcome was the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies, established under the Act of Parliament in 1964, whose mission was to, quote, record language, song, art, material culture, ceremonial life and social structure before those traditions perished in the face of European ways, end of quote. Clearly, anthropology understood colonisation produced effects, but very few anthropologists were interested in investigating its impact. Instead, the aim was to preserve and capture Aboriginal culture, not abject Aboriginal poverty. The first principal of the Institute was Fred McCarthy, an anthropologist who set up a publishing arm of the Institute for academic research papers from different disciplines, including linguistics, physical anthropology, history, demography, and musicology. The non-Aboriginal academics and members, primarily anthropologists, archeologists, and historians, controlled and benefited from the Institute for many years. It was not until 1970, after the election of the Whitlam government, that the first and only Aboriginal person was appointed to the Institute's council. An increase in Aboriginal representation did not occur until 1989 after a government review of the Institute, which led to its transition as the current Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. A new act was passed specifying that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders should hold five of the nine members of the new council. Increasing numbers on council did not, however, change Aboriginal studies as the domain of non-Aboriginal academics. The Institute established a peer-reviewed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies Journal in 1983, committed to publishing high-quality research in Australian Indigenous Studies. In 1988, the then editor of the journal, in response to another government review of the Institute, 
gives insight about how the non-Indigenous staff understood their role. He wrote, we are not an Aboriginal organisation, but we try to affect Aboriginal aims and aspirations. We are not a political organisation, but many, perhaps most of our activities have political implications. We are not a museum, but preservation of major components of Aboriginal heritage is one of our most important roles. The list of our functions defines our clients, Aborigines, academics, politicians, government, and the general public. We provide output to and receive from all these groups, end of quote. So Indigenous studies in the Australian context was very much a domain of non-Aboriginal knowledge production. And consequently, the field of study was defined through members of the Institute of Aboriginal Studies. In this way, the state provided the fiscal means for developing Indigenous studies, enabling the professional development of non-Indigenous academics separate from but connected to disciplines within Australian universities. The lack of Indigenous academics teaching Aboriginal studies in Australia contrasted with the US and Canada. As Warrior states in his submission to the Review of Higher Education, Access and Outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, also known as the Berent Review, concerning higher education in Canada, quote, Native studies, also called variously Native American studies, First Nation Studies, Indigenous Studies, American Indian Studies, Hawaiian Studies and Aboriginal Studies is the most prevalent and highly developed academically focused phenomenon on tribal college campuses and has become in many institutions an academic home for Indigenous students. Indeed, this is perhaps one of the most important things to note about Native American First Nations Aboriginal Studies programs. They provide a place on college campuses for faculty, staff and students to work together in the central work of higher education, which is academic. Native and non-American, Native and non-Native staff, faculty and students typically end up working together in such programs to create meaningful and academically rigorous courses and research. Some of the oldest, best universities have active Native study programs, including Dartmouth, University of Toronto, University of North Carolina, Berkeley, and UCLA. Some programs, such as that at Cornell, seek to combine academics and student support, while others, including the program at University of Oklahoma, draw bright lines between academic programs and student support, end of quote. In New Zealand, the first Māori Studies course was delivered in 1952 at the University of Auckland, and by 1978, Auckland offered 13 courses with many New Zealand universities following suit, and they were run by Māori. Rigney argues that a substantial increase in Australian Aboriginal people entering higher education did not occur until after 1985. This was in part due to the Racial Discrimination Act of 1975, which made it difficult for universities to racially exclude Indigenous people, coupled with the work of the National Aboriginal Education Committee formed in 1983, which advocated for increased Indigenous student numbers in higher ed and the establishment of Indigenous education and support centres. To increase Indigenous numbers at university, the Commonwealth Government in 1985 established the Aboriginal Participation Scheme, funding extra places for Indigenous students. From 1985, Australian universities received supplementary funding, which are in, that's in addition to the funding received in mainstream for Indigenous students. 
The supplementary program is to assist with recruiting, retaining and graduating Indigenous students. Between 2017 and 2022, Australia universities received $421,753,345 and a total number of Aboriginal student completions was 15,062. This program up until 2017 also funded Indigenous academic appointments and support centres and they offered electives in degree programs. In 2023, undergraduate students at all Australian universities can gain a perspective about Indigenous people through subjects and courses in a wide range of disciplines. However, if teaching and research are interdependent, then we can expect those who teach in Indigenous studies to be active researchers, advancing knowledge in the discipline. Slide one, please. But if we look at this, I pulled this data from the ARC last year. Between 2016 and 2021, the AAS Discovery Program, there were only 73 grants over that five years that were using Indigenous research codes, and they were mainly archaeology, historical studies, public health and health service, linguistics and law. The next slide shows all Indigenous studies codes for the successful 73 grants, and it should be noted that Aboriginal academics are not strongly represented across these areas of research. For example, the research study I led on pre-service teacher ed preparation for teaching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students showed that Macquarie University offered 18 core Indigenous subjects, the most on offer in all faculties of education in Australian universities. However, only three Indigenous academics were employed in total by the university. The figures for full-time and fractional academic appointments in 2021 number 572 out of the 136,951 full-time fractional, full-time and actual casual equivalent non-Indigenous staff employed in 42 universities. A lack of publicly available data on who teaches Indigenous studies courses in Australia still poses a major challenge on, in tracking academic capacity, strengths and gaps. Unlike Australia, a critical mass of Indigenous scholars in the US universities enabled debates about what constituted Indigenous studies as a discipline. Similar discussions occurred in New Zealand, Hawaii and Canada. Crow Creek Sioux scholar and elder Professor Elizabeth Cook Lynn notes, the first concerted effort by Native scholars to address what constituted Native American studies occurred at Princeton University in March 1970. She states what many, quote, what many Native scholars of that era wanted, understood, was that an academic discipline requires that a body of intellectual information, such as the Natives of this land possess, about the world, to be internally organised, normatively regulated and consensually communicated, end of quote. The discussions at Princeton focused on the protection of Indigenous lands and nationhood, as well as Indigenous knowledges and rights. After this initial gathering, further symposia were held to define the disciplinary principles of Native American studies. It was agreed that Native American studies was the endogenous study of Indigenous cultures and history, with Indigenous belief systems constituting the foundation to differentiate it from traditional disciplines that pursued exogenous studies 
of Native American communities. Two concepts would be key drivers in developing the discipline. Indigenousness, encompassing culture, place and philosophy, and sovereignty, including history and law. Published in the same year as Cook Lynn, Māori scholar Mason Jury wrote an overview of the development of Māori studies in New Zealand universities. He noted that the field was uncomfortably constituted by, and I quote, being an area of study in its own right, an academic discipline and a potential component of every other area of study, end of quote. While acknowledging that Māori studies has been enriched by several disciplines of law, science, linguistics, anthropology, philosophy and history, education and sociology, he argued that Māori philosophies, worldviews, language and methods form the basis of Māori studies within the academy. He explained that the foundation of Māori studies is built on a Māori-centred approach to producing knowledge one that is neither exclusively traditional nor Western in orientation. He noted that, and I quote, a greater emphasis on Wanu, group learning and peer support, as well as the observation of some customary practices, tend to distinguish Māori studies taught by Māori scholars. The Indigenous focus on an Indigenous approach to history, language, politics, culture, literature and traditions led by Indigenous scholars was also reflected in the development of Native Studies in Canada after the National Indian Brotherhood's position paper in 1971 to establish First Nation colleges. These early Indigenous thought leaders understood the importance of creating Indigenous Studies as a discipline within the academy that privileged indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing in the production of knowledges. In his seminal work entitled Tribal Secrets, Recovering American Indig in Indian Tradition, Intellectual Traditions, published in 1985, a sage scholar, Robert Warrior, wrote, and I quote, I contend it is now critical for American Indian intellectuals committed to sovereignty to realise that we too must struggle for sovereignty, intellectual sovereignty, and allow the definition and articulation of what that means to emerge as we critically reflect on that struggle. Warriors' call to American Indian intellectuals resonated with a new cohort of Indigenous academics as non-Indigenous scholars continued to dominate Indigenous studies to different degrees in Canada, US, New Zealand and Australia. What was, in, what was needed, in effect, was the development of a new epistemological strategy. In the 21st century, this strategy resulted in the emergence of critical Indigenous studies, which has expanded and demarcated its epistemological territory from Indigenous studies. The new body of scholarship disrupts the certainty of disciplinary knowledges produced in the 20th century when the study of Indigenous peoples was and remains to a large degree the knowledge-powered domain of non-Indigenous scholars within First World nations. And I use the term First World not as a definitive concept but one that positions Canada, Australia, New Zealand and Hawaii uh, particularly since the Cold War, as being politically and racially aligned within a global community of dominant white wealthy industrial capitalist countries such as Britain and the United States of America. 
First world nations that continue to occupy unceded indigenous lands and whose kin are connected to British and US imperialism. In these countries, critical indigenous studies has traction, although the specific historical, cultural and geographical context of formation and content varies. It is a discipline, knowledge, power domain where distinct work is produced, taught, researched and disseminated by and for Indigenous scholars. Critical Indigenous Studies is multicultural, multinational and transdisciplinary. It is the home of Indigenous-centred knowledge production, where the object of study is colonising power, irrespective of phenomena identified by the signifier Indigenous. Critical Indigenous Studies premise is that colonising power operates through a set of regulatory mechanisms, disciplinary knowledges and procedures that have the role or function and theme even when they are unsuccessful of securing power. Colonising power is relational, as Fuqua argued, and I quote, it is not founded on itself or granted by itself. Mechanisms of power are an intrinsic part of these relations and in a circular way are both their effect and cause, end of quote. So colonising power is both enabling and constraining. Thus the political and discursive turn in critical Indigenous studies is to mobilise Indigenous epistemologies as our foundations of power and knowledge informed by the cultural domains of Indigenous peoples. Indigenous scholars from different disciplines and nations ask new questions of old problems, recognising that colonisation is systemic and institutionalised in everyday practices and processes requiring further intellectual examination. A strength of critical Indigenous studies scholarship lies in a consciousness of the different cultural knowledge toolkits we use, including those that are shaped by Western disciplinary and discursive processes we wish to understand and analyse. The adjective critical we use to qualify Indigenous studies to demarcate Indigenous and non-Indigenous analytics, which we extend beyond the endogenous studies of indigeneity to the exogenous study of colonisation. The coherence of Indigenous studies developed by non-Indigenous scholars lies in a multidiscipline problem-oriented approach, the focus of which is the study of Indigenous people, and it achieves epistemological coherence through the objects of its study and differentiation. The study of Indigenous peoples was important in the development of modernity's preoccupation with defining a hierarchy of humanness based on racial differentiation. As Langton argues, and I quote, Indigenous studies is primarily an artefact of the colonial encounter, end of quote. So Indigenous knowledges, the modes of inquiry we deploy, the methods we develop, and the ethical and cultural protocols that inform our academic, academic practice are not the same as non-Indigenous scholars. Indigenous embodied knowledges can be engaged by non-Indigenous scholars, but they do not produce them. Similar arguments have been made by feminists regarding how men can operate, operationalise feminist analytics, but they do not experience or know the world as women. This is one of the ways in which feminists have differentiated their analytics from patriarchal knowledge production in demarcating the epistemological boundaries of feminism. Women's studies situated and defined itself institutionally by privileging gender as a contested category of analysis within knowledge production, 
signifying epistemologically a differentiation from heteronormative masculine disciplines. So women's studies was built by feminist scholars focusing on the social location of women and exposing, to quote Harding, how disciplines were complicit with sexist and androcentric agendas of public institutions, end of quote. Recognising that knowledge is always socially situated enabled feminists to operationalise women's lives as a source for producing knowledge. Within critical Indigenous studies, relations of ruling come into view from the actualities of the Indigenous bodily existence in our everyday lives. In exploring the conditions of colonisation, we utilise our cultural knowledges to produce critical insights about our lives and others. We understand that knowledge is socially situated and culturally connected to our lands and non-human relatives. Indigenous lives provide the starting point for asking new and critical questions about Indigenous being, doing and knowing based on presuppositions of relatedness to place, non-human relatives, people and importantly the earth. As such, the connections between Indigenous knowledges, relatedness and embodiment distinguishes and marks the intellectual sovereignty and epistemological ground of critical Indigenous studies. Our tendency is not to isolate and focus on an object of interest, but to understand the object in the context of its relatedness. As Métis scholar Chris Anderson argues, critical Indigenous studies exposes the ontological density of our being in our difference and how we have been represented as different. The process of Indigenous differentiation is not solely one of choice, nor is it epistemologically and ontologically constraining. Critical Indigenous Studies is a knowledge power domain whereby scholars operationalise Indigenous knowledge to develop theories, build academic infrastructure and inform our cultural and ethic practices. This critical work challenges the critical, the disciplinary power knowledge structures and discourses through which Indigenous people have been framed and continue to be known. We are exercising intellectual warriorship as warrior states because it is a decision to make in our minds, our hearts and our bodies to be sovereign. This is a process that enables us to be comfortable with uncertainty. Building the discipline of critical Indigenous studies also requires a conscientious engagement with the politics of Indigenous citation one that is mindful of how citation practices can be a tool for either the rarification of or resistance to non-Indigenous hierarchies of knowledge production. Indigenous scholarly citation leads to connection with other Indigenous scholars' work. It is a way strategically of deploying Indigenous relationality in our academic interests. Citing other Indigenous scholars' work, whether via critique or affirmation, can provide leads for other Indigenous scholars, often to, work to an area that is poorly indexed and uncited. The role of citation within critical Indigenous studies is that it attributes status to the discipline. It is akin to scholarly scaffolding, where every publication builds on the foundation of previously published work. The frequency of citations is a measure of relative importance or quality of the scholarship. Indigenous academic citation practices are integral to Indigenous sovereignty as it increases the disciplinary knowledges of critical Indigenous studies. In seeking to build critical Indigenous studies, Indigenous scholars 
are conscious of defining the attributes of a discipline, noting it should have institutional recognition and an international community with a professional association and specialist journals. Betcher and Trowler argue, and I quote, that international currency is an important criterion. It is a general, though not sharply defined set of notions of academic credibility, intellectual substance, and appropriateness of subject matter, end of quote. So globally, critical Indigenous studies has acquired many of these disciplinary attributes, including the criteria for our knowledge, that is trust significance impact, and the methods that regulate our access to it. Critical Indigenous studies has produced practitioners with expertise and economies of value whose work has become seminal to the discipline. We owe much to the intellectual sovereignty of those whose work continues to shape the discipline. To name a few, a few of them, uh, Sue Professor Vine Delora Jr., Māori Professor uh, Linda Tuai Smith, Native Hawaiian Professor Hunani K. Trask, and Torres Strait Islander Professor Mark Nata. Nakata. Critical Indigenous Studies, mainly outside Australia, manufactures discourse in abundance. Articles, monographs, conference papers, books, as well as ongoing contractual and untenured jobs. Scholars within the emerging discipline have secured funding, research awards and contracts. Critical Indigenous Studies also generates prestige and scholarly status. Globally, critical Indigenous studies is multidisciplinary, multinational and multicultural, with an epistemological territory that includes Native American studies, Indian studies, Native studies, Native Hawaiian studies, Maori studies, and of course, Aboriginal studies. While the knowledge power domain of critical Indigenous studies holds a familiarity and similarity, there are also discernible dis differences which can be attributed structurally to the colonised society's education system, history and national traits. Despite these differences, critical Indigenous studies scholars do engage with each other's work. As a discipline, critical Indigenous studies is serviced by established Indigenous-controlled journals, which have existed since the 1970s, though a lot of them do not exist in Australian university libraries. In the United States, Indigenous academics established and published Wiskazo Sa Review, um, it's taken some time for that to be followed, but since the 1990s, there's been a growth of Indigenous journals, to name a few, Alternative, the Journal of Māori and Pacific Development in New Zealand, the Aboriginal Policy Journal in Canada, the Canadian Journal of Native Studies, as well as the Australian Journal of Indigenous Education and the Native American Indigenous Studies Journal of the Native American Indigenous Studies Association. So Indigenous monographs are also being published in unprecedented numbers, with several US publishing houses competing for book manuscripts such as Minnesota Press, Arizona Press, Duke, Nebraska Press, University of Toronto Press, Otago, University Press, Hawaiian. Unfortunately, Australia has not been part of this trend. A third indicator of critical Indigenous studies disciplinary growth is the presence of Indigenous professional associations and research centres that have been established to organise research-related activities, as well as convening conferences to enable intellectual engagement and the formation of national and international networks. The Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, the World Indigenous Peoples Conference on Education, attracts Indigenous scholars and a small number of non-Indigenous scholars from around the world. As stated, previous, as stated previously, the establishment of Indigenous 
research and education centres, tribal colleges and departments have played a strong role in developing transnational connections as well as being committed to local Indigenous communities. The nature and extent of this institutionalisation and the conditions of existence, though often marginalised and under-resourced, intellectual sovereignty and the development of the discipline of critical Indigenous studies. And perhaps one of the most important 21st century interventions in developing this discipline was the establishment of the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, of which Professor Hukafutu is the um, past president. The origins of the association began with Robert Worry's idea of intellectual sovereignty and Ojibwe scholar Jenny O'Brien's concern to build the professional infrastructure to provide the ground for scholarly engagement for Native Studies and Indigenous Studies scholars. Warrior, uh, to facilitate the establishment of the professional organisation, Warrior, O'Brien and Weaver and others established a steering committee to host committee meetings and by 20, 2009, NASA was official. Uh, it's in, it is an incorporated organisation composed of a governing council and a nominations committee and members who participate in and organise the annual meeting. The association has achieved its primary aim to undertake intellectual and administrative work to foster collaborations and discussions about disciplinary and geographical boundaries on an annual basis at different locations. The organisation has a journal, independent website and promotes Indigenous intellectual sovereignty. The importance of the association to critical Indigenous studies is the provision of a professional and intellectual space and a space for the development of new ideas and relationships. But despite these achievements, Métis scholar Chris Anderson argues that what is important for, for the longevity of critical Indigenous studies is its departmental status within universities. Anderson notes that little attention has been paid to the institutional location of critical Indigenous studies as the preoccupation over the past four decades has been the intellectual work of demarcating its epistemological boundaries. He argues that there is a correlation between the lack of institutional power and the lack of engagement with the intellectual work of critical Indigenous studies. In Canada, the current changes and austerity measures being operationalised by universities has resulted in older disciplines taking a claim to decolonisation by including Indigenous studies as part of this curriculum. Uh, this is positive in that it enhances the quality of the scholarship and the support for the discipline. However, this in turn makes them highly competitive with Native study departments for student staff and institutional power. Older established departments have disciplinary credibility and sources. Anderson explicates that critical Indigenous studies must recognise the possibility of its conditions through achieving departmental status. Refocusing our intellectual production on density rather than our differences to deal with the immediacy of our indigeneity within modernity and grounding our curriculum locally to engage with Indigenous sociality. He notes that grounding our curriculum in a local Indigenous context gives critical Indigenous studies a competitive edge that other departments would flounder to match. Anderson concludes that establishing a discipline requires institutional credibility and viability. The attainment of departmental status within universities would ensure sustainability for critical Indigenous studies by providing the institutional infrastructure 
needed to achieve academic excellence, intellectual integrity and rigour. In the past two decades, Indigenous studies programs in the US have risen from 61 to 130, and in Canada, 8 to 30. He argues, and I quote, that Indigenous studies units must continue to work on tending to our Indigenous to Indigenous encounters, collaborations, and comparisons, connecting our own departmental islands across university contexts, regional and national borders, end of quote. Anderson's argument that departmental and institutional status is important for the sustainability of Indigenous studies. Clearly critical Indigenous studies is yet to gain traction within Australia. Indigenous studies has more institutional support in the Australian context within the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Studies that does not teach. Indigenous studies but receives around 40 million per year from the Commonwealth Government. Out of 42 universities, we have only one Department of Indigenous Studies, and that is at Macquarie University. There are five schools of Indigenous Aboriginal Studies, Curtin University, James Cook Uni, University of Western Australia, Charles Darwin University, and Charles Sturt University. These five schools were formerly Indigenous education and support units, and the Indigenous student support program funding they still receive provides administrative assistance to teaching and researching Indigenous studies. 36 Australian universities have not demonstrated the fiscal leadership to fund Indigenous studies departments or schools. Instead, it is seen to be financially prudent to offer an Indigenous Studies major tied to existing non-Indigenous disciplines and programs. This fiscal strategy benefits non-Indigenous academics, professional development and research capacity as they produce most of the literature and win most of the nationally competitive research grants. Indigenous Studies majors and minors in Australia are often co-branded across bachelor degrees and located in disciplines such as linguistics, prehistory, public health, history, anthropology, education, and political science. Within these disciplines, non-Indigenous perspectives of the history, culture, social, political, and economic development of Aboriginal people are taught. Australian Indigenous scholars who teach Indigenous studies are often located outside faculties and it is often the case that what they offer is tied to a reconciliation action plan that positions the teaching of these courses as a moral obligation, not an intellectual endeavour. In Australia, the debate over what constitutes critical Indigenous studies as a discipline has not gained the same traction as elsewhere. And Torres Strait Islander Martin Nakata, over many years, has produced scholarship and trying to stimulate discussion about what is Indigenous Studies in Australia. In the Wentworth Lecture in 2014, Nakata argued that there were limitations with Indigenous scholarship focused on what constituted Indigenous knowledge, which he asserts is informed primarily by a politics of indigenisation. He defines indigenisation as, quote, making a space within universities that, are re that is recognisably Indigenous a space formed by inserting and, and asserting content, <coughs> practices and processes that culturally affirm Indigenous people, students, community and perspective, end of quote. <coughs> he explains that Indigenisation has been important for claiming space within the academy, but as an intellectual project, it is reductive 
because it produces simplistic oppositions of us and them, the West and the Indigenous. Instead, Nakata proposes that what is required is an understanding of the cross-cultural space in which we function and produce knowledge. For Nakata, this requires an understanding of the cultural interface, a space that consists of complex, multiple, historical and discursive intersections where Indigenous and non-Indigenous knowledges are entangled. It is a place of constant negotiation, contradiction and tension. He argues that this is the life world of many Indigenous people who have learned to accept ambiguity and contradiction as part of being Indigenous. He advocates for scholarship that engages with the traditional disciplines to demonstrate how this knowledge is limited in its ability to understand Indigenous peoples. Nakata notes that at this point in Australia's history, we need more Indigenous scholars to undertake this kind of intellectual endeavour to move beyond our fixed station with the politics of indigenisation and by implication an indigenous endogenous approach to knowledge production. He advocates that the complexity of our entanglements at the cultural interface requires a more sophisticated and nuanced form of analysis. For Nakata, a more nuanced form of analysis rests on three principles. The positioning effect of knowledge or claims to know. Two, practices that order, privilege and operationalise some claims to know by excluding or silencing others. Three, at the complex Indigenous Western knowledge interface, forms of scepticism and epistemic attitudes are necessary to consider the delimitations and dispositions of both Western and Indigenous theorising for understanding the Indigenous contemporary social realities. Now, Mart I argue that Martin's three propositions identifying the conditions of existence of knowing renders invisible the power knowledge nucleus that enables knowing. If knowledge and power are entangled in this way, then what are the conditions of possibility available to us to disentangle the relationship between knowledge and power outside of epistemic violence, the epistemic violence we experience in universities? What positioning effect of knowledge or claims to know are we discussing? How do we know when they are operating? What are these practices referring to? And who are the practitioners and how do they operate institutionally? These questions make power relations visible in the positioning effect of knowledge or claims to know, which in the context of Indigenous studies is inextricably tied to disciplines and Indigenous knowledges. For example, the multidisciplinary, multicultural and global nature of critical Indigenous studies means it is a site where our disciplinary training and Indigenous knowledges incorporate certain kinds of knowledges as well as contesting and excluding others. In Aotearoa Māori scholar Brennan Hokafitu advocates that our intellectual sovereignty requires Indigenous scholars to make an intervention into Indigenous studies, one that challenges its current fixations with identity. He advocates that a post-Indigenous studies must refocus its attention on the immediacy of indigeneity in modernity. Hokafido argues that Indigenous scholarship's preoccupation with colonisation and identity formation has led to an overextended engagement with the universalising project to explain ourselves, to make ourselves known. Hokafido requires us to shift our concerns away from being preoccupied with identity fetishism orient stories and false binary thinking. We need to address the ways in which essentialisms have come to impede Indigenous people's ontology so that we can move beyond the colonisers' definition of our humanity. 
in the introduction to the Rutledge Handbook of Critical Indigenous Studies, Hokufido argues that critical Indigenous studies has sought to criticise the unsettler white claims to possession over knowledge itself. Second, critical Indigenous studies refers to scholarship grounded in resistance to multiple forms of violence and microaggressions that Indigenous peoples and communities face every day in their neo-colonial realities. Third, critical Indigenous studies refers to scholarship that upholds sovereign claims to Indigenous lands, languages, cultures, ecologies, ontologies, and existentially. To conclude, Indigenous studies in Australia has a very different institutional history to that of US, Canada, and New Zealand. The financial investments in Indigenous studies up until the 1970s was very much through the government's funding of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, and non-Indigenous academics benefited the most from this investment. Australian Indigenous people enter tertiary education much later than in other countries. Australian universities have not invested in developing the capacity of Indigenous academics, nor creating the conditions such as schools of Indigenous studies for that possibility. In the University of Australia's 22-25 Indigenous strategy, it prioritises supporting Indigenous students to degree completion. And why? Because that is what receives the biggest investment from government. Universities support non-Indigenous faculties to deliver Indigenous studies that are sustained by non-Indigenous students enrolling in them. In US, Canada and New Zealand, critical Indigenous studies scholarship has traction and to some degree is embedded institutionally as a substantive site of Indigenous knowledge production, publication and dissemination. Indigenous professional organisations such as NASA, AUSPICE promote and support Indigenous scholarship globally. In Australia, most Indigenous scholars who are producing and contributing to the discipline are doing so with institutions that do not invest in their intellectual labour. Despite these constraints, Indigenous scholars are committed to, to developing critical Indigenous studies as a discipline. They extend and are guided by our intellectual traditions and ancestors to offer students our locations of engagement that place, provoke and entice our thinking beyond the familiar and comfortable. They deploy incisive critique and bring analytical acumen to propose new ideas to contemplate within critical Indigenous studies. As I have acknowledged, the aim of scholarship in the past decade has been to engage with earlier configurations of Indigenous studies, to expand and make our discursive and material horizons the territory of critical Indigenous studies. Indigenous scholars do not send, seek to limit, nor will be, we be limited by what those horizons might be. We cannot waver in our objective to challenge the knowledges that have been produced about us. We are following in the footsteps of our intellectual giants who courageously created the possibilities of Indigenous scholarship. We are future-proofing new Indigenous knowledges in different ways from our ancestors. Indigenous academics have been resourceful in creating some autonomy to create distinctive Indigenous theories and methodologies grounded in our philosophies. However resourceful we have been, we have undertaken this intellectual work with the consciousness of the institutional disavowal of our sovereignties 
on unceded Indigenous lands and the disregard for our intellectual worth. We tolerate the disingenuous collegial engagement. We suffer the advice that our knowledge production has no traction within universities, which minimise professional opportunities for Indigenous academic excellence to flourish. We endure the university's disinterest in our knowledges, except when they can be appropriated and commodified. And we must abide the lack of financial investment in our research and teaching. We are forced to tolerate the epistemic violence we experience in non-Indigenous universities that accord us few privileges from the spoils of colonisation. Thank you for listening. Lost for words in one sense, Aileen, that was brilliant. A um, lot of unpacking to do for probably a lot of people here in terms of the things that spoke to you, um, that you pulled out and that you're probably the audience I'm talking about when I'm talking about you. Um, and we'll probably go over it in the days and weeks ahead in terms of the layers of the things that Aileen said, Professor Morton Robinson said this evening in terms of the history components, the comparisons between Australia and New Zealand and Canada and the US, huge differences in terms of when graduates started to come from overseas unis as opposed to here, um, the philosophical underpinnings and the premises, the funding, the enormity of the funding that in a sense goes to university, but we've got to question what, are, what is being produced. I was not aware that we only, I knew we had few schools of Indigenous studies in Australia, but to think we only have five, one department of Indigenous studies in the country, when we know what's ahead of us this year. We have a referendum and we have treaty in this state, let alone the other states. So it, it, the investment doesn't match where the country also wants to go and where we want to go as Indigenous people mm -hmm. and where <coughs> Indigenous people have been going. Um, thank you for your um, presentation tonight, your speech tonight, your lecture tonight. For the years and effort that have gone into that paper, it's not just a paper that's taken a few days, a few weeks to bring together. This work is some of Aileen's work that she has been working on and thinking through for years and years to offer that knowledge to us tonight. So thank you, Aileen, on behalf of everybody here tonight. Yes. Um, 
I do invite people to um, mingle, stay on, mingle, have some more drinks, um, have some conversation, talk about uh, what Aileen has spoken of tonight amongst yourselves um, and just think about where we go from here, what we need to do. If you're from the university, what we need to do as a UQ community as well in regards to the messages that Aileen shared with us tonight all through her talk in terms of the future of Indigenous studies. Go well. Thank you for coming this evening. <laughs>